you would, turn to the book of 1 Peter 1. Be ready, verses 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which the angels long to hear. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning, church. I'm so excited to start this brand new series in the book of First Peter. For those of you who've already been part of Waypoint's Men and Summer series, during the summertime, we take a break in our typical small groups. And during the summertime, we have just a men's only and a women's only series. And we've been studying the book of First Peter. So for those of you who've already started in this book, great, I'm glad you're in it. For everybody else, I'd like to challenge you with this. Dive into the book of First Peter. I really encourage you to spend some time studying this book this summer as we go through this whole sermon series. So for the rest of the summer, the sermons will be on the book of 1 Peter. So dive in with us. Let's study together. Don't just read it. Reading it's good. That's all you can do. Just read it. But let's study this word together. I love the fact that we have a letter written by Peter the Rock. Now, I say this because, one, I love the Rock, the actor. I do. And so in my mind, all of a sudden, I'm now picturing Peter as the rock. You know, like I'm like, oh, like that guy, Dwayne Johnson with the eyebrow. You know, he's now the one who wrote this letter to me. So I love it even more now. His nickname was the rock. because That's what Jesus called him. He changed his name. 
the Peter the Rock. And I love that there's a letter written by this guy. I mean, this is the guy who was so incredibly bold, but also showed himself to be a huge chicken, right? He's the guy who says the right thing one moment and the complete wrong thing the next. I mean, he's like us. I mean, if you look at the other letters of the Bible, I love Paul. Paul is awesome. He wrote Romans. I mean, come on. Romans is incredible. Philippians. He wrote these amazing letters. But honestly, when I think about it, I feel like Paul is above us. Paul just feels like, oh, he's Paul. He's super spiritual. He's so holy. He just seems like over here. But when I think about Peter, I think about the guy who puts his foot in his mouth. You know, I think about the everyday normal guy. I think about um, the guy who messes up. You know, the one who Jesus looks at one moment and says, that's the rock I'm going to build my church on. Then it says, um, get behind me, Satan. The guy who's so bold that he draws a sword, cuts off a year of a guy. But Jesus is like, no, that's the wrong time to be bold, man. <laughs> and the right time to be bold is when he goes running away saying, I don't know that guy. I don't know Jesus. This is a guy who messes up, and I love that about him. He's the fisherman. He's a normal guy. And he writes this very practical letter for a very specific purpose. That's why I love it. I'm so like, okay, here's a letter written by a practical, everyday, normal guy that like, I can relate to. Paul's just too hard to relate to. Most scholars believe Peter wrote this letter while he was in Rome to a region which is now generally known as modern-day Turkey. The Peter is writing to a group of people who are going through tremendous suffering and are about to go through more. In one six, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though for now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. In 4.13, he talks about the fact that we should not be surprised by the trials we are now in. Now, we don't know exactly what the nature of those trials are in. Most scholars tend to believe he wrote this around 60, early 60s AD. This is before the major persecution of the church under Nero, the Roman emperor, happened. But there were still trials and persecutions and sufferings going on today. People were, Peter was speaking to people who have suffered tremendously. Maybe some of their family members have been persecuted. Maybe have been executed. Many, many of them may have been plundered by hostile forces or kicked out of the land that they've known and loved, lost all their possessions. Almost without exception, I would say about the troubles and trials that they've experienced are probably ten times worse than anything you've probably ever experienced in your life. You know, I'm sure there's some exceptions here. But the reality is this. Some of you might be feeling right now that you are experiencing trials, tribulation, and suffering. Therefore, what Peter is doing in writing this letter to this, these people is he's talking to these people who are experiencing trials, but maybe with a prophetically, he knew that bigger trials were coming. And he's preparing this people. He's saying, here's how to do this. Here's how to, to live through life. Here's how to go through the furnace of trial and suffering and come out with pure gold and not leftover slag. Here's how to go through this suffering. The dating of this letter, like I said, comes before Nero's great persecution. But what we don't know is maybe Peter had foreknowledge, prophetically speaking, of this persecution that was coming. Peter was preparing his people for suffering of all sorts. The purpose of this letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. New Testament scholar Achmeyer says that the letter is intended to strengthen the readers in the now of their suffering and persecution by assuring them that the future of glory will transform their present condition as surely as their present situation transformed them from their past. 
So how do you live and come out of suffering? How do you live and come out of the furnace? How do you live and come out of persecution and trial? And how do you live in that and come out as pure gold and not as slag? This is what Peter says in the very first two verses. He says, to those who are the elect exiles of dispersion, of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. I love that Peter started off his letter with this incredible address. With this statement of identity, who this is written to, he says this is to the elect exiles. By the way, I love that term, elect exiles. That's the title of the sermon. And if anybody wants to start a worship band, a men's group, a mission project team, anything, I thought that would be the perfect name for it, the elect exiles. Um, if anybody starts that band, by the way, I want royalty. Just throwing that out there. He's identifying the people he's writing to. This term elect is electos. It actually modifies the term parapidemios, which is literally translates elect strangers or elect pilgrims. And so this term elect is just modifying the term strangers. So elect strangers. In other words, to see this clearly, this is often the way that's used in Septuagint to describe the Old Testament Israel as God's designated chosen people. It's a modifier, saying that they're elect people, they're chosen people. He forecasts here in the theme of 1 Peter 2, 9, where the church is called his chosen people. The word strangers here, Introduces a crucial idea in this letter that is that God's people are pilgrims, are sojourners, and exiles on earth. The church is God's suffering people having no place of rest in this world. C.S. Lewis has a quote. He says this If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. New Testament scholar Gopolt observes that God's election is what accounts for their being exiles. They're not exiles because of um, condemnation. They're not exiles because they were born a different race. They're exiles because of the modifying word elect. So in other words, they're exiles because they're elect. Their interpretation is that they're born out of the word elect. They're not aliens literally. They're sojourners because they are elected by God. Because their citizenship is in heaven rather than on earth. Those who understand themselves as God's elect have the ammunition to resist the norms and culture of society that they inhabit. This election reminds the readers that they, are no, they, have, that they have status not because they are so worthy or noble, but because God has bestowed his grace upon them. That's from New Testament scholar Gopal. Guys, what this is literally saying is that for us, our identity as exiles on this earth is not because we were cast off, not because we weren't loved, but because we are elect. The modifying word is elect. So we are exiles because we are elect. What that literally means to you guys is this. This is not your home. I love the fact that our two churches' names, we have one called Journey and one called Waypoint. And both have a similar kind of connotation, similar kind of idea. It's this idea for us at Waypoint Church, the name Waypoint kind of came up with this idea, was that we are not home. We're at a new place. We're at a different place on a journey to get back home. And a Waypoint is kind of a, a stop along the journey, a, a marker along the way. Right? And so what we're discuss, discovering is that we are on a journey together, but the reality is we're here as diplomats and as ambassadors in this world because our real home, our citizenship is in heaven. Guys, what Peter is initially just 
amazingly saying to his people, his initially guy, he's saying, those to you guys, you guys are elect exiles. Don't forget that this is not your home. Can I tell you guys every day, we need this reminder, don't we? Can I tell you that I need this reminder every day? Because here's my reality in my sinfulness. I live every day on this earth often as if this is my final home and my final destination. Don't we do that? Don't we so often live like there is nothing else to live for than this here and now, this present life, and this reality? And the reminder that Peter is saying from the very beginning, from his very initial address is, guys, this is who you are. You're elect exiles. Don't forget that. What we often do is, is we're often like the ambassador that was sent to live in another country to carry the interests of that nation, that kingdom. And we're just kind of like, ah, it's kind of nice here. I'm just going to take a little bath and hang out and relax and not do anything representing the nation and the country that I'm sent from. We forget our true identity and our true home. I can tell you that if you're an elect exile, your citizenship is in heaven. And I love right after that, right after this is who you are to God's elect, that it goes into this according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What an amazing address. You have the whole Trinity in there. You're chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of the Son. It's all in there. We have the sum total. And even it's, a, it's an incredible expression of how the various parts of the triune God uh, interrelate and cause one another. It's an incredible chain here. It says elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father. The word according to roughly means because of. It's the very best way to translate it right here for you. It says the foreknowledge of the Father results in election through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Then election through the sanctifying work of the Spirit results in obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. The foreknowledge of the Father leads to election through the sanctification of the Spirit. And the sanctifying Spirit leads to the sprinkled blood and obedience to Jesus Christ. This expression of the Trinity is jam-packed with rich and deep significance. But Peter's purpose in this statement is to remind to the recipient of the letter who they are. They are elect exiles, the ones that are no longer made for this world. Because God sent his son to die in their place and their spirit to work out their sanctification in their lives. They are forgiven ones, redeemed ones, known ones, loved ones, called to a purpose. Growing up, my mom... I came from a Korean-American home, so my parents were immigrants from Korea, and I was born in the United States. And growing up, my mom would constantly remind us to behave a certain way. And this is what she would say. It doesn't translate very well, but I'll say it anyway, see how it works out. There's certain words that are English words, but my mom would say it in a Korean way, so it's not really a true English translation of that word. But this is what she would say to us. She would say, growing up my whole life, she would say that her and her children were high class. Were high class. Even though we lived in an apartment that were crawling with lurches, we were high class. It's not the same connotation for you. You, know, you might have the same connotation of high class means expensive cars and 1% of 1%. That's not what it meant for my mom. That's not what it meant for us. For my mom, it meant that we were called to a higher standard. You know, my sister and I would now joke, uh, mess with my mom, and say that she often lives in her own fairy tale world. You know, we kind of joke about it now. My mom, we always say she's a little crazy. Somehow she lives in this fairy tale world where she's like the starring queen, the starring princess in this world. We'd make fun of her for it sometimes. But what she did was she always made good out of bad situations. What she did is she always turned horrible into great. And she always did that for her children. When we had nothing, she made us feel like we had everything. She told us we were important. 
She said we were high class. The world identified, could have identified us however they wanted. Immigrants, poor. Whatever my, but, whatever, but to my mom, our identity was that we were high class. Called us something better and bigger. She would use this for our grades. We'd come home with a low A. And she said, no, no, high class people get high A's. I was like, man. She would use that for um, where if I'd get into a fight or my manners in public. She would say, that's how other people might act, but not us. We're high class. No matter what the world thought of us, she would hammer into our identity, into us as a person, and into us as children, and say, no matter what circumstances, no matter what we're eating, no matter where we're living, it could be no matter that we live in an apartment of seven of us with my grandparents and in this tiny little apartment, you know, with roaches around, it doesn't matter, we're high class. That's who you are. That's your identity. You're called to a higher standard. And that was hammered into me and my sister. And now we joke about it, but now I think about it. Now, tears in my eyes, honestly. And I think about it, I say, thank you, mom. Because no matter what happened, I believed her. And I believed that I was called to something so we could face any situation in the midst of it. You see, I think most people think that their hope in suffering in life and in persecution is one day their suffering will end. Right? Most people, when they face suffering, difficult times, hardships, they think, okay, my hope in this is one day it'll get better. One day I'll have money. One day I'll get over the loss and the hurt of the pain. One day I'll get married. One day I'll have children. Whatever it may be, you have this hope that one day the circumstances will get better. And that's so often what we do. We turn to things to be our hope. But that's not at all what Peter points us to. In the midst of people who are suffering under persecution, who will suffer even more persecution and even more suffering, Peter says, I will not point them to a thing or a circumstance. I'm going to point them to their identity. He hammers into from the very start who we are. We are elect exiles who are saved according to our triune God. Do you see? It's not, hey, one day you'll get money. One day it'll be over. It's right now you have a living hope. Because right now, this is who you are. Verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are born again to our living hope. Our identity is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is not if I try hard, maybe God will bless me someday. The gospel is because of what Jesus has done. Something is kept for me. I am absolutely guaranteed of getting it. There is no condemnation for me. I'm holy and beautiful in his sight, perfect and changed forever. Even now, it changes the foundation of my life. I can handle anything. It changes the relation between joy and sorrow in my life, which makes me utterly different from anybody else. How do you get that? Tim Keller says the difference between religion and the gospel is in religion... You're trying to be good and just wishing and gambling that someday God will accept. And people who know, I can be accepted completely now on the basis of what, uh, uh, the, uh, sorry, the difference between religions is that 
you hope and you, you pray that you did good enough to receive salvation. Religion is, I give God a righteous record, then he owes me. The gospel is, God gives me a righteous record in Jesus Christ. And then I live in absolute freedom from him. Do you know the difference? I always say this, the human condition, and the Waypoint Church people are so tired of me saying this, I'll say it anyway. I always say the human condition is this, we want to be known, we want to be loved, and we want purpose. And what religion does in that, in that whole concept of wanting to be known, wanting to be loved, wanting purpose, is religion says, okay, so if I act good enough, if I show good enough deeds, then I can, I can be known, because look, my good deeds kind of outweigh my bad deeds, doesn't it? And maybe then I can be loved. Religion says, okay, I work really hard and make myself kind of presentable for somebody to know and love me. But the gospel says that if you truly want to be known, all the depths and the darkest places in your heart, truly known intimately the way you want to be, the way you crave to be, that vulnerability is so scary. Because when you really look down, sometimes you think to yourself, man, I can't even know if I can love myself. But in the gospel, the good news is that God says, I know you, every bit of you, and I love you. Not because you're worthy, not because you're good, not because you're noble, not because you're humble, not because you're beautiful, not because you're rich, not because you're talented, but because out of my foreknowledge, out of my choosing, my election, I love you, and I chose to send my son to die for you. So there's nothing you did to deserve it, and nothing you can do to get rid of it. There's security confidence. We're born to a living hope. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our identity in the gospel of Jesus, let us go through the testing of various trials, the furnace, and come out as gold. And I love this really quick little tidbit. I'm just going to throw this out there because I don't have that much time. I'm going to throw this little tidbit out there. It says this here. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that... A tested genuineness of your faith, what precious in gold, may result in praise and glory and honor. Do you guys see that so that part right there? I love that. Do you guys see that your suffering, that your trials and your hardships are not meaningless? Can I say that again? That your sufferings, that your trials, that your hardships is not meaningless. It says it's so that when you come out, when it comes out as gold, when it's tested genuine, and it comes out, what then does, it leads to praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Guys, your suffering leads to glory of Jesus. It is not meaningless. So often we look at tragedy that strikes in our lives. So often we look at so much persecution or, or trials that we might suffer through and think, why, God, why do we go through this? And guys there tell you that I can't say like, well, because you did this, this happened this, and this happened this, and so-and-so came to know Jesus. I can't say that. I don't have the vision of God. 
But I can tell you this with utmost confidence in my heart that the Bible says it so clearly that whatever you suffer, it is not meaningless. It is not pointless. And it leads to You hear that? You hear that, people? I love in verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Guys, another way that I truly believe that God has called us to have a living hope, to, to enact our living hope, to live as elect exiles in the face of persecution. One, Peter is saying, first and foremost, guys, this is how you do it. You're reminded of your identity. How do you live in persecution and come out as pure gold? How do you live through suffering and come out as gold? How do you go through the furnace and come out as gold? You focus on your identity in Christ. Not in the relieving of the circumstances, but in your identity in the gospel. That's number one. But number two, very simply put, you love Jesus. Let me explain that a little bit. You see that there's power, this, this idea, it's, it's how you activate this kind of living hope. It no seems abstract, but let me tell you how to figure out how to work with this. How did Jesus deal with his suffering? Does anybody know? I'll give you a little hint. In Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him. Right? It says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured. For the joy set before him. But what would that joy be? What was Jesus' joy? Well, the joy step before could be maybe a glorious crown. It could be ruling. It could be kingdom. But you guys got to understand, Jesus already had that, right? So then what was the joy step before him? Why did he have to come to earth if he already had all that? What was his living hope? What was his joy? Isaiah 53 says this, The results of his suffering he will see and he will be satisfied, for my servant will justify many. Do you know what the results of his suffering are? The results of Jesus' suffering is us. He justified many. He justified us. So what does that mean? It means what got him excited? What was the joy set before Jesus? It was us. The idea of being with us forever, of redeeming us, of atoning for us, the relationship with us, that was part of the joy set before him. He was excited about us. Do you guys get that? He was excited about having you in his arms. He was excited about knowing you and loving you and calling you to purpose. He was excited about you. The day that he could shower his love and delight upon you. If you think about that, doesn't that move you? I mean, knowing that Jesus, what the joy set before him, his living hope was he knew his identity. He was able to embrace suffering because he knew his identity, but he also knew that I have a living hope. I have a joy that's set before me. It's us. Can I tell you right now, the answer to your suffering, the answer to all the trials and life's issues that you're going through is not going to be here. Here's money. You, oh, here, you won the lottery. Here's the loss that you come back. No. It's here's who you are. You're an elect exile, beloved of the Father, ordained by him, sanctified through the Spirit, and forgiven through the Son. You are a co-heir of Christ. You're known, you are loved, and you are called to incredible purpose. You're part of his kingdom work. You're 
You can cry out with First John where it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon me that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Guys, you were like me when I was a kid when my mom said, oh, I'm high class. And I believed her. Jesus looks at you and says, you're high class. You're mine. You believe him. You believe him. And in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that persecution, you stand in that identity and then you do something else. You choose to love Jesus. You choose to love him. You choose in your choice. You say, you know, for the joy set before me, endure the cross. Well, for my joy, my love of Jesus, I will endure this, knowing that it leads to glory. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that it happens like that. I'm saying that here's Peter writing to a group of believers who are suffering through persecution and trials and suffering, who are going to pretty soon, under the persecution of Nero, experience the worst of the worst. And what they needed to hear, what Peter felt he needed to tell them, was this is who you are. So may we, as people, may we be reminded who we are as elect exiles and choose to love Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you so much that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. God, it's so incredible for us to fathom. It's so incredible for us to even imagine that what, he, what, that, what that means is for us. For the joys that before him, for us, he endured the cross. God, maybe for somebody in this room right now who doesn't know, who's never professed, who's never believed the gospel, maybe for that person, God, will you give them the strength? Will you give them the desire? Will you give them the heart to, to during this last set, to, during this worship song, to come and to go to the back and find any of the ushers or find me or Josh and to come and to pray with us? God, will you give this opportunity for those who don't know to come and know? Because we know that we will go through life, we'll go through trials, we'll go through suffering that is inevitable in this life, but we now know that it has a purpose, it has meaning. So may we come out as pure gold because we know our identity. And we choose to love you, Jesus. And we thank you for you. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?